Good morning, everyone. If you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 9. We are finished up in John chapter 8. We were there for, I believe, five Sundays. There's a lot there to cover. And uh, we're wrapping up John 7 and John 8, which is kind of one section there where Jesus shows up at the tabern at the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. And lots of confrontation in chapter 7 and chapter 8 with the Pharisees. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of having a demon. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. And we looked at that last week, what that means. They were absolutely rejecting Jesus, of course, as the Son of God. And they were even saying that he was a Samaritan who's come from a false religion and is representing God falsely to the Jews. Uh, Jesus in turn tells them that actually their father is not Abraham. Their father is not God, but these Jews, the Pharisees, the teachers of the Jews, their father is actually Satan himself. Uh, they don't take kindly to that, right? Uh, also, we see that Jesus, in this, this kind of a mic drop moment, you might say, ends John chapter 8 by letting them know clearly, dogmatically, that he is I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am and they pick up stones to kill him. Not because he's claiming to be older than he really is, but because in that statement he claims to be God. And it's taken from Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals himself to Moses, and Moses says, Who shall tell the Israelites is sending me? And God says, Tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. They're unable to kill him. No one can kill him. He's untouchable until he, he is, his time is up, and he knows exactly when that is. So that carries us over to John chapter 9 today. John chapter 9, if you look uh, on your pages there, is one long story, uh, one long narrative, you might say, uh, of, of one incident. And it's kind of hard to divide up into multiple sermons. I've made a few marks that we'll try to stick with, but who knows where it'll end up in the end. Even this week, I was going to go through verse 12 and got to verse 3. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, how we can divide this and, and still take it all in and not lose the, the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees, etc. But let's look at verse 1 through 3 today. Follow along if you don't mind. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign over all things, and we thank you, God, for providentially bringing us here and ordering our steps to be here today to enjoy one another's company and the sweet fellowship amongst believers. Help us to rest in you and rest in the salvation that you have provided through Jesus Christ. Help us to, to rest in your word and be strengthened by your word today. Help us to be uh, active, engaged in our listening and learning and applying uh, today. Help our minds not to wander but help us to focus on the truth that you have for us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we look back at verse 1, of course, where we'll begin today, uh, we're going to note, and, and this, this sermon today is, is really in the first text here, is going to have to do with a lot of, lot of basically your theology of suffering. When things don't go your way, when you suffer financially, when you suffer physically, when you suffer mentally, spiritually, etc., uh, what do you do with your theology at that moment, all right? So we're going to be diving into that, and we're going to be doing a lot of flipping through our Bibles today, uh, stemming from John 9, 1 through 3, so kind of get ready on that. But look back at verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So very simple, the, the story begins, they are walking by, Jesus says, sees the man that has been born blind, the disciples give him two options here. Alright, there's a man born blind, obviously someone has sinned and God is punishing this person for that sin. So either, and they're asking Jesus, this man sinned, and now God is punishing him for his sin, or his parents sinned, and that's why he's receiving this punishment. 
because bad things only happen to those who are doing bad, supposedly in their theology, all right? Now, there was a common belief at that time uh, that all suffering, if you were suffering, even financially or physically, if you had ailments, it was due to your sin. You had personally provoked God, you had sinned against God, and now you're receiving retribution for that in your body or in your finances, etc. So they viewed those that were wealthy as, as favored by God, right? And those who were doing physically well were favored by God. Those who had leprosy or disease or blindness or lame must have surely done something evil, so they were being judged by God. This is how it was common at the time. Now, is this the way that you view suffering? Uh, do you attribute all suffering to personal sin? And what about even your own suffering when you suffer? Is your immediate thought to go back to kind of what the disciples were thinking here? Have I done something? Am I sinning against God? God doesn't love me or God hates me or I'm being punished by God. Uh, your theology when you suffer is often tested. It's easy to think right thoughts about God on a beautiful day when your body's working well, your mind is working well, and it's, it's, everything is going great, right? But when you suffer... That's when you really begin to question sometimes, and it's good to have a good biblical doctrine to draw from on the doctrine of suffering. So, do we have examples, biblical examples, of personal sin causing illness and suffering? Were the disciples far off on this? Like, absolutely not. That is preposterous that a person would sin and be... be uh, Punished by God in his physical being? or uh, Is that possible? Is that right? Is that wrong? So we're going to look at a few examples today. Uh, we actually have far too many to pull from, but I'm just going to give you a couple here, all right? A few. All right. Uh, is, is there biblical examples of personal sin causing illness and suffering? Uh, we could go back to Adam and Eve to begin with, right? Uh, they, we know from the curse that they received there would be pain even in childbirth, right? Uh, we also know there would be thorns, that, that Adam would have to work, and that there would, be, there would be pain, there would be suffering, there would be tribulation because of their sin. That's why that came about. So we can go all the way back to the first sin, and we see that there are personal consequences to their personal sin. Of course, Adam represented all mankind, and all mankind has sinned in Adam. We are born with sin, right? But we see this has affected everyone. So did that sin also affect their children? Yes, right. You are, you are a child of Abraham genetically, I guess you could say. And so we've all been affected by Adam's sin. So the disciples weren't too far off on this at all. Now, go to a couple examples here. Look over at Numbers chapter 12. And once we get into... Uh, we get into the Israelites and them coming out of Egypt, and we can see lots of examples. I've just chosen a couple here to look at. Uh, but Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, then we're going to skip. Uh, you feel free to go back and read the entire section, but just for today's purpose, I'm going to skip and go to verse 9 through 15. I think that summarizes the story quite well as far as what we're looking at. Does a person, or can a person, as the disciples thought, sin, and then be punished by God? I think we're going to find the answer is yes. Uh, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Let's get down to... to I'm sorry, I, did, I read verse 2 and read on into 9 there. Sorry about that. All right, so go back to verse 9. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Go to verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in. 
So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. So if we look back over this story, uh, who caused Miriam's leprosy? And it would be God. Uh, why did God cause her to suffer? Because of her sin. So this is leprosy that she is punished with as she rebels against God's chosen person, Moses. And they begin to exalt themselves over him. And God says, no, I've called Moses to this, not you guys. God is angered and immediately brings upon her leprosy of which there was no cure. And her body is covered as if a person is as one being dead, just like that. God also lifts it and removes it, and seven days later, she's able to come in. So before we dismiss the disciples over here in John chapter 9, saying, who calls this person's blindness? Was it their sin or their parents' sin? All right, we do have some examples that they could be coming to mind in the disciples of, all right, punishment, disease, things go wrong with the body. Uh, can be in connection to those who have sinned. We see this with Miriam. Miriam. And then if you turn over to Numbers uh, 16, uh, I believe it is number 16, you have, you have uh, the rebellion of Korah, which, goodness, you have, uh, is, were they affected by their personal sin? Uh, yeah, the ground opened up. Who opened up the ground? It was God himself, right? And uh, I'm, I'm talking and turning. I can't do the both at the same time. Genesis, Exodus, okay, here we go. Uh, and then you have, you have 14,700 of them during that same episode who, who get a plague. God immediately causes a plague. And it is unlike plagues of today's times where it was immediate death that 14,700 people died due to the plague that day because of their sin. So, are there physical consequences sometimes dished out by God due to personal sin? And we would have to say that the disciples were right in seeing this as a viable option, okay? Uh, go to the New Testament. Let's look at the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we see another famous example of personal sin and personal physical consequences of that sin with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, we'll just look at verses 4 through 6 for today. Uh, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Uh, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. All right, so this is Acts chapter 5. We guys are familiar with this story most likely, uh, but Peter is there. Others had sold, sold land and brought all the money and given it to the disciples to distribute as needed. Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, apparently... Uh, want to get credit for doing something very similar. So they sell some, but they also hold some back, which is not wrong to do, except they said they gave it all. They, wanted the, they were doing it for pride, for arrogance, for self-glorification, uh, um, all right? So when asked, he lies. And we find out he lies not to man, but he lies to God, the Holy Spirit. And what happens to him? He falls dead. His wife comes in moments later and commits the same lie, and she falls dead. So was there consequences for sin and physical consequences? Yes, death came to them on the spot, all right? So we see this, this is something that we would need to take into consideration, do need to take into consideration. Look over at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 27 through 30. These are Paul's instructions of taking the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians were not doing so in a God-glorifying, Christ-honoring way at all. There was much greed. Uh, the Lord's Supper and the meal associated with it had turned into gluttony. It had turned into the rich uh, gorging themselves on this and not leaving enough for those who weren't wealthy. And it was, it was definitely not brotherly love being shown in this, in this meal. And it, was, it had become an expression of their sinfulness. So, so look what he says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 
Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So, is there a consequence physically to sin here, according to Paul? And we would have to say, yes, there, there is. He said, literally says, this is why. What is the reason for the why? It's because of what he'd written previously, that they were completely disrespecting one another, disrespecting God, disrespecting the sacrifice, disrespecting the body, the Lord's body, the church itself. And they were, their, their Lord's Supper was full of sinful, evil, greed, covetous desires, gorging themselves, etc., etc. So much so, this is why, due to your sin, Many of you are weak and ill, and even some have died, all right? Um, I should have put these in better order, but go back over to, to Acts chapter 12. Look at Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, just to, just to see one, one last one. And again, this, this could go on forever. Uh, when, you, when you're in the book of John and you come to John chapter 9, you see the disciples saying this. At first glance, you're like, oh, that's preposterous. That can't happen, right? But then you start thinking, you're like, oh, no, that happens a lot. Actually, we find this a lot in the Bible. Uh, look at Acts chapter 12, 22 through 23. Uh, and people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So here you have Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Why? Because of sin. They, they gave him glory. He did not in return give that glory to God. He kept it on himself, and the angel of the Lord struck him down because of it. So, the disciples blaming the man's blindness on his own sinfulness was not outside the realm of possibilities. All right, So we just want to acknowledge that that's not outside of the realm of possibilities. It is a possibility. Uh, now, what about the accusation that the man's blindness was caused by his parents? Are there examples of this? And again, I think at first you're like, oh, no, there's no, oh, wait a minute, Adam and Eve, right? Okay. Uh, were the Adam and Eve's kids allowed to go back into the Garden of Eden because they were innocent and righteous? Uh, no. Were their grandkids able to go back into the Garden of Eden? No. No, no one ever was. Why is that? Because there were consequences. The, the sin has, has contaminated them as well. Uh, you look at the Israelites. Uh, the children had to suffer 40 years in the desert because of the, the parents' sin, right? And they had to wait till they died off finally to go into the promised land. So that there sometimes there is a connection. One of the most specific examples is when King David commits adultery uh, with Bathsheba. And if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll give you a moment to find it. If you want to find that, 2 Samuel chapter 12, right after 1 Samuel. Yeah. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's free. Free of charge today. Uh, <laughs> Brad's cracking jokes today. He came back strong. Uh, yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So here we have an example the disciples could have had in mind who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that sometimes this has happened. Uh, we've, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, murder, etc. is involved in that. Uh, the product of that union, their child is going to die because of that sin. All right, so we do see that as an example. Now, let's consider this. Is all suffering caused by personal sin or the sin of parents? Uh, do we have examples of people being ill and suffering not due to personal sin? And the answer is also going to be yes. So we have this realm of possibilities. that it, We see that disciples, to a degree, 
that were right. Like it could be him. It could be the parents. But also we have lots of examples of people suffering uh, not in direct correspondence to their, a specific sin. Again, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but we're looking for a specific tie-in here. And uh, Jesus covers this. Look over at Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus deals with this directly with two examples of people dying tragically. Which was also, yes, in their belief, if you were suffering, then this is punishment from God for personal sin. If a person died tragically, oh, this is just the ultimate revelation that there was secret sin in their life, unconfessed sin, and God is punishing this person with a tragic death. Now, does that sometimes happen in the Old Testament? It, it does, right? But again, the ground opened up, and Korah and all his family, right, sucked down into the ground, crying out all the way down. The ground closed up over them. Sometimes that can happen. But it doesn't mean that every time a person dies tragically, that it is punishment from God. And that's what we see here in Luke. Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? All right, well, Paul's right there. This is the first example Jesus gives. So apparently, uh, historically, we find that there was a group of Galileans who had made their way uh, to the temple for sacrifice, who were stormed upon by the soldiers, uh, Herod soldiers, uh, they, 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 the pilot, pilot soldiers, they, they beat them, they killed them. Uh, their blood was mixed with the sacrifices that they were bringing, which this is just ultimate corruption, uh, that their own human blood is mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. Surely this is punishment, direct punishment from God for their personal sin. But Jesus says, no. Look at, look at verse 3. He literally says, no, <laughs> this is not it. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's his second example. Uh, this, this tower falls down. Uh, many think it was some kind of natural disaster. Maybe an earthquake had happened there. It falls on 18 other Jewish Israelites. Uh, so surely this was punishment from God for their sin. They must have been worse than all the other sinners in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? No. In fact, he tells them, don't try to connect the dots to that. What you should be concerned about is that you're all going to face the judgment of God one day. An eternal tragedy is going to come to you unless you repent and turn from your sins. This is what you should be concerned about. Instead of trying to connect the dots out here to people who have died and say, oh, God is really dishing out judgment here on those Galileans. They must have been bad. Or the 18 where this tower fell, they must have been really bad. He's saying, look at yourself. Look at the sin in your life that is known and repent of that sin or something worse is going to happen. And that's the judgment of God and the eternal placement of you in hell. All right, now let's consider, uh, do, so again, is sin, uh, do we have examples of people being ill and suffering uh, not due to personal sin? Yes, Luke 13 tells us that, Jesus tells us that. Also, we want to consider Job. Turn with me over to Job. And it's hard to mention suffering without bringing in Job. It is basically a book on suffering. And... Uh, Suffering and Sovereignty, Suffering and Sovereignty, just an incredible book. We don't have time to read the entire book today, but I definitely highly recommend you do so at some time. And I'm just going to paraphrase chapter 1 and chapter 2. All right, chapter 1 there in Job, God tells Job the most righteous man on earth. So he is, he is God himself says that he is the most righteous man on earth. Satan says uh, Job's obedience, though, is due to God's not allowing him to suffer. So Satan says, you've protected him, you've shielded him, that's why he's righteous. You, you allow some pain, allow some suffering, 
Allow some trials, some tribulations, some persecution. Allow, allow some hurt. And you know what? He is going to curse you, and he is going to turn from you. And God, God says, okay. And not only does God say, okay, but God actually recommends Job to Satan, which he's the most righteous man on earth. And so he recommends this to Satan. Satan is allowed then to take his family away, not just far away, but death. Immediately, Job goes from having this big family, lots of people, to uh, it's just he and his wife, which that's not a blessing if you keep reading, by the way. Uh, she, 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 she is, she is uh, left, I think, to be negative to him. It's, 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 uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But it's part, all part of the plan there. And then, uh, and then you see that all his wealth is taken away suddenly. So you see his finances are destroyed. His family is totally destroyed. And yet he continues to obey God. Now put yourself in his shoes. It's amazing. Imagine just waking up one day and it's just boom, 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 boom. All of your family is gone. Uh, and you wake up and here all of your finances are totally gone. What would happen? Would you still serve God in the face of that much suffering? Job did. And then we fast forward to Job chapter 2. Satan comes back around uh, looking for someone. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job again? And he's the only reason he serves you, though, is because now you've protected his body. And if you let me, let me attack his body, then he's going to turn. And so God says, let it be. Just don't let him die. So Satan is allowed to, to go after him physically. Uh, he's covered in sores. He's, he's, he's from head, it says from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet covered in sores. And he is in pain and agony. Look at Job chapter 2. Just look at verse 7 through 10. We'll read that one together today. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She did not come to the Martha Peace Conference, all right? <laughs> Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil or disaster, your translation may say? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what can we learn from looking at this glimpse of Job's suffering? Uh, God does not connect it to a personal sin. And here's why you're getting this punishment. Here's why your family died because of a personal sin. Not at all. He's the most righteous man on earth, the Bible says. His wealth is taken away, not because he's done something wrong. It's part of this testing. His physical health is taken away, not because he has personally sinned in a certain kind of way and this is punishment, but because it's part of this testing. And it's no little suffering. These are all major things. To have your finances wrecked overnight, to have your family gone, death, 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 funeral, funeral, funerals, and now his body is covered in sores so that he cannot even, they're on the bottom of his feet, they're all the way to the top of his head. He's broken pottery to scrape the sores. This, not to be gross, but this is to relieve the, the buildup all right, of the boils, of the sores. He is scraping them to get things out. He is sitting in ashes, which sometimes, and he'll allude to this later in the book of Job, that he repents in dust and ashes, which is a common way of, of, of expressing repentance in that time. But also he is in the ashes to stop the bleeding, most likely, as well. He, just, he doesn't just grab a handful and put on them and go on about his day. He can't walk. He can't move. He sits in the ashes and scrapes himself and rubs the ashes on him. So he goes from this wealthy man, big family, servants, huge livestock flocks of, and herds everywhere, to now he just has his wife by him who's saying, curse God and die. Like your, your suffering is a waste. It is completely wasted. Just go ahead and die. Get this over with, right? And Moses says, you speak like one of the foolish women. You're supposed to know better than this. And what does he correct her? He tries to correct her theology of suffering. He says, shall we receive good and not, not the disaster from God as well? Job still is acknowledging God's sovereignty through all of this. Uh, uh, so there's lots to be learned here about Job's suffering. How did others, his great friends, uh, what did they say about his suffering? If you remember, uh, they blamed it on 
personal sin. Like the disciples were pointing out when they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, uh, his friends came along, Job's friends, and said, you sinned. This is why this is happening. And Job says, I, I, honestly, I, I didn't. I can't, I, mean, I'm, I can't think of anything. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's secret. You've hidden your sin. We know you've sinned. We all know you've sinned, or this would not be happening to you. And they spoke incorrectly of God. So how does Job respond? Well, the, the chapters are just full of his introspection. He's trying to see if he has sinned and repenting of any sin that is there. Uh, but he, he, he doesn't sin during this time. He doesn't curse God. But he does keep asking why, why, why. And anyone here that has suffered has done that many times, I'm sure. Why, why, why. And then we find that at the end of the book of Job, he never finds out the reason why. But he is strengthened through all of it. God shows up in the last few chapters are all about God being sovereign over everything. From telling every lightning bolt where to go to the feeding of all the animals over the earth. And just detail after detail after detail. And remember God shows up and says, brace yourself like a man. It's like, whoo, this is big, right? And uh, he's acknowledging like, you are my creation. I am the creator. You don't get to ask why. I, I don't have to give you the answer for your suffering. And he never does. He just reveals who he is more clearly to Job. And in the end, Job gets it. Fast forward, turn to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. If you look there in verse 1, Job 42 verse 1. After this, after seeing all these great details, the, the huge things and the little things and where God is sovereign, Job answers the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So this is at the end. God has revealed his sovereignty even more clearly to Job, who was the most righteous man on earth. All these things have happened to him, and now he is even stronger. He has been strengthened by this. He, he had a glimpse of who God was before, still acknowledging his sovereignty, but now the picture is so much more grand. He acknowledges who God is, who he is. He says, I uttered things that I should not have uttered. Even though he didn't curse God and die, he was still just, why, 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 wanting to know the reason bad things happen. Why are bad things happening to me? My family is gone. I've lost all my finances. I'm covered in soil and sores. I'm sitting in a pile of ashes all day. My friends and my wife are no comforter to me. Why are these things happening? And in that he says, I shouldn't have even asked. These, th these are too wonderful. I can't get to the bottom of this. Now what about Job's friends? What does God say to them? Look at verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, not termite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Wow! So the Lord was mad at his friends for claiming to be the voice of God to Job. Have you ever had that friend? Uh, tries to be the voice of God uh, for you during your time of suffering. You've got to be really careful. Right? Uh, these, these men were speaking dogmatically. Uh, this is exactly why you're suffering. Because there is hidden sin. And because of the hidden sin, God is punishing you. That's why this is happening. You've done horrific things somewhere at some time. And God is punishing you because of your sin. So here we find out that it's not because of Job's sin. So you put it all together and you have another example of a person who is suffering uh, physically, financially, but it's not tied to their direct specific sin. Now, we know the story of Job. Uh, God, he, he goes through this test. He goes through the time of tribulation. He comes out spiritually stronger than he was even at the beginning. God used this for his strengthening. God used this for his sanctification. And he comes out with an even greater view of God in the end. And his health is restored. All right. But the point of this is we, we do see that bad things can happen. 
Suffering can happen, and it's not tied directly to sin. Now, go back to John chapter 9 for a moment. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and we're in verses 1 through 3. And, and according to verse 3, let's look at this. Who does Jesus say sinned and caused the man's blindness, himself or his parents? And again, the disciples give Jesus two options, but which one does he choose? He chooses neither, right? Uh, look at verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is the perfect opportunity to for Jesus, who, who knows all things, he could have easily said, oh, well, it's obviously because his parents sinned, and now this, this boy is getting punished, and now he's a grown man, but it's all because, or it's because of this person's sin. He says, neither. This is not it. But instead, look what he says, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is fascinating. This is a grown man, as we find out later in John chapter 9, they bring the, his parents into it, and they say, hey, no, 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 we're not going to speak for him. He's old enough. Let him speak for himself. He's a grown man. Uh, in other words, they wanted the parents involved. Surely he's not really born blind. Uh, this must be a trick. And like, they don't want to get involved because they know the Pharisees hate Jesus. Uh, so he's supposed to speak for himself. He's a man. He's been born blind. Imagine that, though, this man. He's been born blind his entire life. Who knows exactly how old he is? Maybe he's 30 years old, whatever. He's born blind all his years on earth. He's been blind. And uh, he's been taught by others that this is due to your sin or due to your parents' sin. And then you have Jesus, God in the flesh, who shows up and says, No, you're blind for the glory of God. This is a major shift in the theology of suffering for him and for those around, right? Uh, look at that, but the, that, verse 3. But that the works of God might be displayed in him so that God has providentially sovereignly uh, brought about this man's blindness to bring about this the works that are about to be displayed when he causes him to see uh, if you think back to Exodus chapter 4 uh, we were there early, just near there earlier looking at uh, the the I am statement but look what Jesus says when when Moses says I can't speak uh, it's too much I can't talk to the Israelites look what he says then the Lord said to him Moses who has made man's mouth? Who made him mute, deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So here we see that this man's blindness had come about, apparently for the Lord, for the glory of the Lord as well. So here's the question. Can God use personal pain and suffering to accomplish his purpose in people's lives? We see in the Bible, yes. But what about your personal life? Like, oh, no, no, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> we don't want that, of course. We, we always want to choose an easier route. But can't uh, God use personal pain and suffering in your life to strengthen you and to, call, and to bring about uh, his purposes in your life and, uh, and in others as well? And the answer has to be yes. So we can't look at like the disciples were as suffering, uh, blindness, pain, whatever, obviously sin here, here, there. No. So it's not always that situation. It could be like Job over here. Not that any of us would claim to be the most righteous man on the earth, all right? Uh, but God can use personal pain and suffering to accomplish his purpose. We see that a lot as well. A, a couple examples. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. We see this exemplified in the life of Paul. Paul suffers a lot. He suffers a lot. But yet, through his suffering... He has a great theology of suffering. He always, he's continuing to see that God is sovereign. God is providentially working in his life and in others. He doesn't uh, say that, that God is unloving when suffering comes his way. He continues to speak rightly and believe rightly about God. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians here, 12, 7 through 10. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's, this is tremendous. He, he prays. He receives an answer three times about this thorn in his flesh, uh, which was, was definitely painful. And God says, no, it, it's, I have it there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. And Paul rests in that. Look at verse 10. Put yourself in these shoes. Could you say something like this? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, this is physical ailments that he was facing, insults, hardships, persecutions, and even calamities. Uh, he is content. Now, that, that's, it's easy to be content when everything is going just right, but what about when the calamities come? Can you still be content? When the hardships, when the insults, when the physical weaknesses come? Uh, well, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So, did God use personal pain and suffering with Paul to make him stronger? And the answer is obviously yes. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. That these things have come his way, but he is reaping the results of being spiritually made stronger by God through it all. This pain and suffering, he acknowledged God was still sovereign. God had a purpose for it, and that God was making him stronger through it all. Uh, look, uh, just Galatians uh, chapter 4, turn over there with me. Verses 13 through 14. Galatians 4, 13 through 14. We find that not only did, uh, did it make Paul stronger, but also his personal suffering. He did not uh, waller in or, or make him unproductive in his spiritual Christian life. He continued to walk in obedience to God, which is something we always have to fight. Uh, when suffering comes upon us, does it make you impotent? Does it make you lose your strength? Does it make you stop working for God and just focus on your own suffering? It can. It can. Uh, does that happen to Paul? No. Look at the verse 13 of Galatians 4. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Wow. So why did he preach the gospel to them or what caused that? A bodily ailment. <laughs> if it was not for this bodily ailment, he wouldn't have gotten the gospel over to the Galatians. So you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached to the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of, the, of God, as Christ Jesus. So again, he used, even though he was in pain, even though he had a physical ailment, he didn't stop. He continued to proclaim the gospel, all right? So we see that, yes, he's being made stronger, but also God is using his ailment to, to bring glory to him, to bring people into the kingdom. Uh, last one. No, almost last one. Almost last one. Philippians chapter 1. Look over there, verse 29 through 30. The last one I have for you, you probably have memorized, so you won't have to look it up. Philippians 1, 29 through 30. Uh, a passage that we definitely cover when we're talking about suffering. And when you're developing in your mind your, the theology of suffering, and listen, this, these are good things to have when you're healthy, <laughs> to develop a good, sound theology of suffering when things are good, when things are healthy, and you establish them, you learn them, because when suffering comes, you draw strength from that, okay? So Philippians 1, 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, so here we have this passage is often, often um, uh, spoken of, ascribed to, or cross-referenced, mentioned, because we see that obviously God is sovereignly involved in the salvation of the Philippians. God granted them belief, okay? So we don't just, we don't just repent and believe on our, on our own. God supernaturally regenerates us, gives us a spirit that is willing to believe and willing to repent. God grants repentance. He grants belief. It's, it's, it's right here in this verse. God granted them belief, but also what else did he grant them? Suffering. 
It's like, oh, turn it back. Stop it at belief, right? <laughs> but he granted them suffering. He granted them suffering. Uh, both of these are from God. So that God has given them belief uh, for salvation, but he's also granted them to suffer for his sake. So we don't want to just focus on that God is sovereign over our salvation and that God is sovereign to, to bring about regeneration and stop there. But we also want to, as Paul does, and reminds the Philippians, that even the suffering, God is still sovereign. And that God has reasons for it. Even Job never found out the why. All right, we have the whole book of Job to read. We get the scenes going on in heaven before God in the dialogue. He never got any of that. He just got sores. All right, everything taken from him. He didn't get all those answers like, like we can look back and see. But God had granted him to suffer. And, and God's glory came through all of that. So uh, Romans 8, 28, this is one you probably have memorized. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this is an important verse to remember, to perhaps memorize uh, when these things come into your life. Uh, is this suffering? Is this pain? Is this turmoil that's in my life? Is this calamity? I have to rest in the sovereignty of God. All things not just the things that you name as good, are for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. All right, how should you respond to suffering? Here are eight points. If you're a writer, write fast, all right? Uh, how should you respond to suffering? We've looked at several examples here. So do, uh, we, we've, we've seen where the disciples say, oh, this man or his parents caused all this and that's that. And how should we create? How should we react? What is our theology of suffering when things happen that, that seem like it's, it's really bad? What should we do? Uh, number one, acknowledge that God is still sovereign even over your suffering. Acknowledge that God is still sovereign even over your suffering. One of the first things people often do is think that God is no longer sovereign because they're suffering. If God was truly sovereign, he would not allow me to suffer. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, number two, Repent, as some suffering can be caused by sin and a lack of repentance. You don't want to throw that out completely. That say, oh, I am suffering. Uh, this cannot be because of sin in my life. Because we see that actually that is in the realm of possibilities. It's not the, always the case, but it is in some cases. So what should you do? Uh, there should be introspection. There should be looking at your life. God, I, I don't know why this is happening. You are sovereign, of course. But if it is due to my sin, search me. As for that, as David did, search me, O oh God. Is there sin that I need to confess, sin that I need to repent of? So, number two, repent. As some suffering can be caused by sin and a lack of repentance. Think about that. Number three, pray that the suffering would be lifted. This is what Paul did. Uh, but if it's not, like Paul, know that God has a purpose for the suffering. So is it okay to pray for suffering to go away? Uh, and the answer is yes. Paul did pray for that. Uh, but it was not in God's will for the suffering to go away. And Paul accepted the sovereignty of God. That it was there for a purpose. Uh, number four. Continue to walk in obedience to Christ through the suffering. Very important not to stop walking forward. Keep doing the things and and. and and acting and walking and living in obedience to Christ, even though you are suffering. Paul, even though he was suffering, continued to get the gospel out, right? He continued to walk in obedience to Christ. Many people, when they suffer, they, they get very uh, closed in on themselves, think bad things, even, even begin to, to, uh, to, to do bad things, perhaps, that they wouldn't do when things were all just right. No, continue to walk in obedience to Christ. Uh, number five, don't allow the question of why me to overwhelm your thought life. Very easy to do. Anyone that's ever suffered, you can get stuck in a rut like a, a broken record. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents in here, all right? Uh, it's just repeat, 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 repeat. And sometimes when we suffer, when things aren't right with, it, with our mind, with our bodies, with our, our finances, whatever, it's why me, why me, why me, why me? And you find yourself just like Job was doing. I want to know, I want to know. I'm demanding an answer. God, you, you owe me the answer. And God does not owe us the answer. His ways are above our ways, all right? Number six, 
Don't use your suffering as an excuse for spiritual decline. Don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop praying. Don't stop attending church. Don't stop fellowshipping with other believers because you are suffering. Very tempting to do. Don't do it. Number eight, lastly, pray for clarity of mind to see that even your suffering will be used for the glory of God if you love him. This is that Romans 8, 28. All right? So pray for clarity of mind. Pray that God help me to see this. Help me to believe this, that all things, no matter what they are, are for my own good because I love you and I'm a child of God and you are sovereign and you have placed this in my life for good. All right? Uh, there's a lot there that we've covered today. Again, we're, we're looking at John 9, 1 through 3. We're kind of looking at what the disciples were thinking, who sinned, but also seeing this big realm that it could be because of parents. It could have been because of his sin. could be because of no direct sin at all. So when suffering comes your way, when difficult times come, think on these things. Your theology of suffering is very important because the odds of suffering to some degree in this life are 100%. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you are sovereign over all things, and you are sovereign over our problems. You are sovereign over our trials, our tribulations, our persecutions. You are sovereign even over our sufferings. And help us to acknowledge that. Everyone here uh, has in the past and will in the future suffer to some degree in various places. And God, I pray that we would be strong when those days come. Help us not to doubt you. Help us not to grow weak spiritually. But help us to continue to walk in obedience to you. Help us not to say the wrong things about you or believe the wrong things about you like Job's friends did. But help us to continue to, to believe rightly. Help us, Lord, if there has been sin in our lives, to repent of that sin, to turn from that sin. And God, help us to not doubt your goodness and to not doubt your love because uh, we are not in heaven yet. Uh, we know the day is coming when we will have glorified bodies, when there is no more sickness, there is no more sadness, there is no more depression, there is no, nothing that could go wrong with us and that we will be made perfect, mind, body, and soul in your presence, Lord. But help us to see that that day is not now. We live in a world uh, where there is sin and there are consequences for sin. And uh, they are global. They're throughout the universe. And that, that some things happen that we simply cannot understand. Like the tower that fell on the Jews or the Jews that got slaughtered and their blood was uh, uh, mixed with the sacrificial blood that was there. Uh, some things happen. And help us to be careful not to assign uh, what we shouldn't assign to them. Uh, the Jews were seeing them as worse off than others because of this. And sometimes we do that to ourselves. Help us not to, Lord. Help us to be guarded throughout our times of suffering, to continue to love you and continue to love others rightly. In Jesus' name.